Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 3-269 of the Run Run Live podcast. We have a wonderfully intriguing chat today with Krista, and she's a runner who used long-distance running as her thesis topic. But of course, like any good exploration, she went native and ended up as an ultra-runner, such as the risk of scientific exploration. Be sure to warn your kids. In section one, in a daring Departure from the main. Well, not really. Actually, it's more of the same self-improvement schlock that you're used to from me. Anyhow, I talk about releasing your inner art and letting the creative acts free. And I wrote this piece because I've had several indicators pushing me in that topical direction over the last couple of weeks. Does that happen to you? You start hearing the same theme and everything you're listening to and seeing the same message in everything you see? like a message from the fates. And I hope it helps in some small way. Because in our culture, sometimes we treat the arts as taboo. I know in in my life it is treated that way. And that's too narrow a definition. We business people and technologists see art as some sort of soft, squishy, throwaway stuff that real people don't embark on. But I think the creative act is essential to a complete and fulfilled person. And art is in the eye of the beholder. It's okay to create. And you can deal with the haters to get that creativeness out. And I'll tell you a story. Once, I was playing a computer game called Civilization. And in this game, you build a city. Maybe you're familiar with it. And the way you win is that settlers come to your city, and when you get a certain population, you win. And I started by being very rigorous and building only those functional things, those balance sheet things, those things that you build a city with, fields, granaries, civic buildings, and such. And my cities would grow to a certain point, and then they'd be sacked and burned, and the populace would flee. And then I figured it out, because let's face it, it's a computer game, so eventually you can suss out the algorithm. And I started building more baths and theaters and entertainment facilities, and my city flourished. I became a successful city planner and a patron of the arts, and whomever the programmers were, probably jaded and unemployed music majors, they sent a message, and perhaps a universal truth. In section two, I'm going to give you the first part of a multi-part series on my plantar fasciitis journey. I am racing the Pocatello Marathon this weekend. I hope to qualify. I have had an excellent cycle of training, but I have also been doing this long enough to realize that anything can happen in a marathon. Therefore, I bit the bullet, and I signed up for the Boston Marathon. Yeah, I'm a big pussy. I decided that I'm needlessly putting pressure on these races, and I want these races to be a celebration of running, not a white-knuckle ride. Don't get me wrong, I'm still going to dash myself physically against the rocks of this race until my body bleeds in search of victory. 
I just got the monkey out of my mind. I've been cutting down my miles into a nice two-week taper. I did a 12.5-mile long run two weeks ago and ended up just about on race pace without working too hard. And I was running down the road, and there was a book in the middle of the road. And I stopped, and it was The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which is a famous book that I have never read because I have never actually been a moody adolescent girl. So I picked it up on the way back and brought it home. I'll have to read it now. There's some sort of irony there. I don't know what it is. If I get hit by a car, that would make an interesting police report in the local paper when they found my wrecked corpse clutching the bell jar. Uh, When I got home from this particular run, I had another treat. I was out on my front porch stretching. And I have to go outside to stretch because sweat comes off me this time of year like the Trevi Fountains. So I'm standing there holding my hurdler stretch, and a a tiny hummingbird flies in and hovers a few inches in front of my face, back and forth, just checking me out before engaging the butterfly bushes. And it was surreal. We had this moment. This final long run, I went out with my club and did a slow run up Mount Watetic and did some, uh, some heavy trails, and I think I'm ready. But whether I'm ready or not, I'm racing this weekend. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Releasing your inner art. Meeting the muse halfway. What wonderful art is inside of you? How many great symphonies unperformed? How many daring landscapes unpainted? How many beautiful and thoughtful novels lay moldering in the lower right-hand desk drawer of your mind? Well, why don't you let them out? Why are you keeping this immense beauty from the rest of us? You do us a disservice. I'm going to ask you today to start working on that art. And first, let's talk about why you're not working on that art, on your art. Why? Because you're not an artist. Because you're afraid because you're waiting for inspiration, because you're too busy. Don't tell us you're not an artist. Do the voices in your head say things like, I'm not a writer, I've never published a book, or what I do is an art, it's a hobby, I'm not good enough, or I've seen the real artists and they are amazing, I'm not an artist. Well, my friend, I'm not telling you to quit your job, sell your family and move to a cabin in the pines or some lonely garret to scribble out the next Moby Dick. Don't narrowly define art. I know engineers that cannot write a sensible paragraph, but they can make art with formulae. We don't get to define your art. You do. Your art is that thing that you have always wanted to create. Your art is that creative project that you've been thinking about for years, and it hides in the creative part of your consciousness nagging at you. And maybe you've started this project before, maybe more than once, but the muse failed you, and you could not overcome that artistic resistance. Your art could be the next great American novel. It could be a great symphony composed for tapping on plastic soda bottles. It could be the fantastical construct of mathematical or fractal beauty. It could be carving gargoyles from the rocks in your front yard. Whatever it is, it is yours. And you know what it is, and you need to set it free. 
My point is that you are the one who defines your art, and it has nothing to do with the approval, permission, or acceptance of others. As soon as you realize that, you are an artist. You don't create this artist for me or for them. You create this art for you, for the simple joy of creation, for the necessary act of setting it free. You are the artist. But you're afraid. What are you afraid of? You're afraid that you're not good enough. You're afraid that you'll fail. You're afraid that you'll succeed. Mostly, you're afraid to let this art free, because as long as it's still an idea, it has potential. When you let it free, it will lose that potential and become something else. You will have lost the dream of one day creating that wonderful thing. And the loss of that potential scares you. When you let your dream become a reality, maybe that reality won't be so great. And now you don't even have your dream to comfort you. You got to get over that. An unrealized dream is a sad and empty thing. Let it free. Don't worry about what form it takes when the birth finally happens. Remember, you are creating for yourself, no one else. Let the creative act happen. What you will discover when you get this creative act out of you is that it is not the only one you have. It is only a seed, only a hint of the creative act stacked up inside you that will come cascading through once this seed is nurtured. In fact, this one thing, this first thing, may be a throwaway act that no one sees, but its sisters and brothers, soon to follow, will be richer and fuller in manifestation. So act without fear. Let it free and see what happens. Letting the creative act free will not empty you. Letting the creative act free will fill you. But you're waiting for that inspiration. Isn't lightning supposed to strike? Aren't you supposed to be torn upright from sleep with the perfect idea to then rush to your desk to pound out that inspiration Kerouac-like in one great diaspora of creation? Well, that could happen, but most likely it won't. It is most likely that you will have to meet the muse halfway. You'll need to lean in. Inspiration will find you while you are working. The process of starting, of doing, creates the hooks and threads for inspiration to weave its beautiful tapestry. So what does this mean? It means you need to start the creation. If it is that sculpture in your front yard, then the best thing to do is to pick up your mallet and begin to create. Don't stop. Pound the stone every day. Inspiration will find you, but usually only if you're working. But you're too busy, aren't you? How is it that when we are creating our life schedule, we don't leave time or room for art? Why are you prioritizing your art below cleaning the toilets in yoga class. Surely this core piece of your soul's labor should be given a spot on a higher step. Carve out 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes, an hour a day for your art. Sit down and do it. Some days will be great. Some days will be awful. All days will move your creative act further on in its conception. Make it part of your life. Any artist will tell you that their great works stand on the shoulders of many hours of futile efforts and lesser works. But those are the stepping stones to the great work. Take those steps every day. My friends, here's my task for you this week. This week, 
I ask you, for me and for all the rest of us, start the process of letting your art free. Think of that creative act that lurks in your soul and begin to work on it this week. Don't plan it. Don't design it. Begin working on it every day. Get a calendar. Schedule that time to create every day. Do it. Every day, do the time, and at the end, cross off the day is complete. Keep at it for a few days, a few weeks, a few years, and you will find a great cathedral of creative works building before you. Don't concern yourself about whether it is good or necessary or measures up. Let it free, and it'll find its own way. This is not about money or fame. This is about turning on a dormant part of your personal fulfillment. Dance as if no one is watching. Carve as if no one will see. Write as if no one will read. The creative act will empty you and fill you simultaneously. Do it now. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. So now, Krista, we are recording. Yay. So are you? How's, how's it out there in uh, California? Where in California are you? Um, I am in Ventura, California, which is um, a little bit between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles. So it's a little, little cozy beach town. Yeah, I think uh, I know of it. I, I don't know if I've been there, but I know of it. It's uh, very pretty out there. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. I'm excited to go on my run after our great conversation. Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to have lunch. I'm going to run tonight. I'm going to go down the track um, and do some some tempo work because I'm a, I'm a week out, just uh, eight days out from a marathon. It's going to be a night marathon, not a night marathon, but it's going to start at seven o'clock at night. So I'm trying to acclimate myself. Yeah. So I'm going to go down the track tonight because it's currently like 95 degrees out here in Massachusetts. Oh my so. gosh. So by the time I get to the track, it'll be probably, you know, high high 80s, which is perfect. Just a little a little light tempo work. I need to get myself on the track. That's the only thing that I really <laughs> have to force myself to get out there. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends. You know, I find it is very valuable because it allows me to isolate the variables in my running, right? So if you're out in the woods, you know, there's too many variables. If you're on the road, there's too many variables especially around here where it's very hilly. Mm-hmm. So if I get on the track, I can I can look at the, you know, the 100-meter splits mm-hmm. and isolate everything so I'm practicing that specific pace and form and mechanics that I'm trying to get to, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily effort or, you know, I'm going down the track to punish myself. <laughs> I'm going down there to, in my experiment of one, to isolate as much as I can so I can learn to run better. Yes, I agree. Right? That's that's awesome. Although occasionally there is some effort and some pain involved. <laughs> so you're a scientist. I I am a budding scientist. A budding I, social scientist, and you're synergizing uh, running and specifically ultra marathon running with the uh, with the clinical sciences in a way. It's kind of cool. I was about halfway through uh, my master's, and right at the beginning of you know picking what I wanted my topic for my thesis to be in. Everyone else in my cohort was kind of, you know, doing typical psychology stuff, you know, looking at, you know, cognition and memory and even stuff as far as drug addictions and stuff like that. And, you know, I was sitting there going, I don't want to talk about any of this, you know, and I'm the type of person, like, if I'm not passionate about something, I really 
I can't do it. I just, I can't. So I had, you know, a meeting with one of my mentors and he was like, you know, and I was telling him about ultra running and my goal for running my first ultra. And he's like, you should really do your thesis on ultra running. And it was like, you know, an epiphany hit me and I was like, I should do that. And, you know, I started looking to see if there was any research out and, you know, there was, there's a few articles on like the experience of flow while ultra running, which was really cool. And, there was a few about, you know, addiction and ultra running, which was really interesting. And yeah, I yeah. eventually decided that, well, not decided, but I realized there's no research kind of looking at, like, I personally feel like the reason I love trail running so much is because I'm out in nature. And I feel like that has like a specific benefit compared to like running on the road or, you know, running on a treadmill at the gym. And a lot of ultra runners that I talked to, you know, said that they do it for that. You know, they do it to be out in nature. They do it for the trail. And, you know, the long distances was just kind of like an organic growth from wanting to spend more time in nature. So I kind of I wanted my thesis to kind of investigate that area. You know, is it a personality factor that's going into this? Are ultra runners different sorts of people? Um, Right. You know, is this you know, are we returning to our roots, you know, being like the primal hunter gatherer? And that's why we love running in nature. And I just wanted to begin the um, investigation of that area because, honestly, no research has looked at the unique benefit of the combination of trail and ultra running up to this point, which blows my mind because I feel like a lot of ultra runners in particular, I've noticed, you know, were ex-addicts or, you know, have addictive personality types or even a sensation-seeking personality type, you know, kind of just like seeking for something more in life, and they use ultra running as that. Or they use right. coping method, right. a positive coping method. And I think for my dissertation, I'm going to take it a step further and, you know, look at it as like a positive addiction because people see it as a negative addiction or the word, the term addiction is negative, but it's actually, I think there are positive addictions that we can have. And I think that long distance running in particular is one of those that is so deeply rooted in our history that it's a vital asset. So I guess since I wrote my thesis, you know, in the beginning, everyone was kind of looking at me like, what are you thinking? You know, you're writing your thesis on trail running. <laughs> and I was like, yep, yep, I'm going to do it, you know, and I just, you know, powered through it. And it was a lot of combining from different areas. You know, I had to do a lot of writing about how nature benefits well-being and how running benefits well-being. So therefore, A plus B equals C, you know. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting because we were talking before, it's very hard to quantify I would think there's probably some fairly rigorous studies out there on endurance, mm-hmm. you know, where I, I know people have studied, you know, like being trapped in the lifeboat for 20, you know, 20 days and what that does to people and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, I don't think anybody's ever done rigorous studies of, of ultra running and all that stuff. You know, it's just it's hard to get to the science because how do you measure that? Right. Like you said, what how much of that is causative? Or how much of that is just, that's the kind of person? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to figure out because I personally feel like when I hang out with ultra runners or when I run with other ultra runners, it's it's a different feel, you know what I mean? Like, you feel, it's like kind of like a family vibe, you know? When you go to an ultra marathon, it's like everyone's your friend. You know, when you line up to a 5K, you don't speak to anyone. And that, I just think it's personality. And actually, in my thesis, what I did find, it was it was personality, Ultra runners were a lot more similar. You know, they were more expressive. They're more conscientious. They're more dedicated. They also were a little bit more neurotic, which I found hilarious. 
but you kind of have to be a little neurotic to be able to train for an ultra. You know, you have to not be lax about your training and not be kind of like, oh, whatever about it. So that right. kind of made sense. It's also, though, I think the ultra running itself, any endurance sport mm-hmm. um, changes a person, right? Yeah. Transforms a person. So there may be some kernels of that um, neurotic <laughs> achiever, seeker personality in the people who really get taken away with it. But anybody who does it gets transformed. Now, take this back to the discussion we were having earlier. I heard a study last week. They were talking about it on NPR about the meditation study mm-hmm. where they actually got people to volunteer for like, I don't know, it was nine weeks or something. They just basically went someplace and made them meditate. Mm-hmm. And they measured the brain. Mm-hmm. And what they found was, similar to what you're saying, they were able to show that the brain chemistry changed. Mm-hmm. And the brain structure changed mm-hmm. and all the stuff that goes with that, the coping skills, the attitudes, yep. you know, all that stuff changed as well. And I'm willing to bet that endurance running, specifically, you know, trail running up to the altered distances does the exact same thing because I think that's what I get out of it. Yes, I agree. And that's actually my kind of like pipe dream um, for a dissertation. I don't know how I would go about getting it done. But one of my mentors was like, okay, you know, we really, we kind of need to get more scientific about this as far as, you know, not just being subjective. Like, how do you feel about running? You know, actually measuring the brain changes. So, you know, if I were to create my dream study, it would, you know, take, you know, a group of probably like half marathon runners and measure the cortisol levels in their brain pre and post run and also pre and post a training program for an ultra marathon and, and to see how their brain chemistry changed during that time period would just be so fascinating to me, but I would have to get connected with a neuroscience major for that and some nice uh, grants, (laughs) money grants for that. Yeah. So, but like you're saying, I think we already know the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. just have to prove it scientifically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my goals because, you know, I think it was about a year ago, there was an article going around that ultra running is bad for you, bad for your heart and all this kind of stuff. And it, it kind of sparked a lot of outrage in the ultra running community. I think primarily because a lot of them feel like, and myself included, ultra running has so many benefits, you know, in running in general, trail running in general, being out in nature, whether it's running or walking is like, I mean, I feel like it's, it's a piece of the pie for our well-being. It's, it's a primal need. And going back to when you're talking about the meditation, my undergrad research focused on flow, which is when any activity, whatever you do that makes you feel alive and drives you and kind of fulfills that inner void that you ever experience. That's so when you, when you find yourself in the zone, exactly. It's also, it's referred to as in the zone. When you hit that sweet spot, when you just kind of, you forget about everything else, but what you're doing and you're able to kind of like your brain is like, it releases itself. You know what I mean? And that's what I feel like when I run, you know, I've felt that swimming, you know, going on hikes. And I think, as long as a person can do something like that, then they're they're enhancing their well-being. In my thesis, I argue that ultra running, trail and ultra running in particular, is like the optimal activity because you know you get the physical <clears throat> the physical benefits, you get the neurological benefits, and it increases your coping methods in all other areas of your life. So it's kind of like 
it's a super pill. You know, if running could be bottled into a little capsule, like the benefits of running out in nature, it would be the best selling drug in the world. But people are afraid of running. And I'm still boggled as to why, you know, they won't even try to start hiking. But, you know, I've gotten my fair share of friends to start running. So making my (laughs) impact little by little, I think. Well, I think a couple of things. When you look at the people who say, you know, running's bad for you, ultra running's bad for you, there is a line somewhere where it's too much of a good thing, right? We we know people who have gone out and given themselves arthritis or other other career-ending sort of injuries by just overdoing it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a question. That's not the ultra-running that's doing it. It's the, you know, my friends who do road marathons. It's not the activity that's breaking them. It's the fact that they went at it too hard for too long. Mm-hmm. You know, so like any other life skill, you got to learn what the correct dosage of that is. Exactly. I agree 100%. And I think that there's going to be extremists in any area you know, in, in one of my presentations for my research, I talked about Michelangelo. And when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, he would paint for 12 hours sometimes. And they would like literally have to stop him so he could eat and bathe himself and, you know, not break his neck because he would get into the flow so much he couldn't, he couldn't stop himself. And I think a lot of ultra runners flip into that trap a lot because you just keep on pushing yourself. And you know, I'm one of those people that I'm not really competitive, which is, you know, interesting for ultra running because I think a lot of ultra runners are competitive. Like, that's how it progresses. But, I mean, for my first ultra, I didn't care about my time. I was just, I wanted to get the miles in. And I was very aware of that threshold. And I knew that if I pushed myself in the first, you know, the first half too hard, there's a good chance I wouldn't be able to finish. So, for a seasoned veteran who's been running for a long time, I bet it gets a little bit harder as you get stronger, you know, and as you see your body being pushed to the brink. I mean, I think the runners in uh, Badwater are going right now. That's a perfect yes, example. Yes, they are. Yep. Of, I know some folks down there yeah, right it's like, now, some folks that we've talked to before. Oh, it's, yeah. you know, I ask myself, you know, when I first started this and I first saw my first 100-mile finish, you know, not me personally, but I first witnessed it. You know, I asked myself the question, like, could I ever do this? Could I put myself through this brutal experience? And I'm still the, you know, the more that I run, you know, that now that I finished a 50K, I'm like, oh, you know, a 50 miler doesn't seem so. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, um, but the folks at Badwater, you know, I've been watching them talk all week. They love it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you're, you're running 140 miles in 121 degree heat. How do you love that? But I guess it's something that you just, the fact that you can transcend that, mm-hmm. uh, nothing else nothing else matters. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe that's, you know, maybe you talk about coping skills. Is it that or are we just deadening <laughs> our response mechanisms, right? Because you look at it, I and I know when I first qualified for Boston and ran my first Boston, it's like, if I can do this thing that is this hard, then I can do anything. You know, it, it layers right over into life. So when you get into tough situations, you can go, yeah, I mean, this isn't that tough comparatively. So it is just, how does how does your brain work that way in the sense that it's almost deadening our response to give us better coping skills? 
Oh, oh yeah, I completely agree. I mean, since I ran my first 50, I feel like I've taken away my right to complain about walking any distance. <laughs> like, I think the other day I was, you know, parking at the movie theater, and I, like, started complaining about having to park far, and I was like, this isn't even 250 feet, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and I ran a 50K, and I'm complaining right now. It's one of those things where you look at, and I think this girl, uh, Vanessa Runs, who wrote a book called The Summit Seeker, who I quoted in my thesis, she talks about how, like, once you run an ultra, like, nobody could ever take that away from you. And it's it's kind of like a personal achievement. And, like, if you can do that, you can do anything. And I think that some people don't necessarily realize how strong they are until they prove it to themselves physically. Yeah. And once they prove it to themselves physically, it emotionally makes you stronger. Um, right. So it, 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 it allows you to transform because it breaks your existing frame of reference. Yes. Oh, yeah. So as soon as your existing frame of reference is broken, when you say, well, if I can do this, then I can do what? And it opens up a whole new word, world for you, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, it basically helps you get out of your own way. And, you know, there's, the only way of doing that is to force yourself. I mean, I, I was very outspoken and told my friends I wasn't ready for my first ultra at all. You know, I had the lofty goal of training for my first ultra and finishing my thesis all at the same time, which was pretty challenging. And, you know, when I started, you know, my first ultra, I didn't know if I would finish. I mean, I knew that there was a good chance I'd finish, but it was still, it was like this giant unknown, you know, and I, I, I could hear all your ultra friends laughing. Yeah. yeah, it's only 50 K. That's like a long marathon. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I hadn't even run a marathon at that point yet. So I was kind of like, what am I doing? And it, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I had a great time. Like, yeah, because yeah. I was laid back. I mean, I'm sure if I pushed myself harder, I would. But you trained for it as well. You were yeah. prepared. Yeah. So this is the real the the thing that I see people doing is there's a difference between being laid back about the event and not being prepared for the event. Yeah. Because if you go in unprepared, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I made myself as prepared as I could be given, you know, right. my experience level. And, you know, it was an amazing experience. And I was surrounded by my friends the whole time. I mean, I think that the Born to Run Ultramarathon, um, which is um, led by Luis Escobar, is probably one of the best first ultras you can do because it's like a looped course. And I was able to see my friends, you know, every 10 miles and go to my campsite and drink a Gatorade and kind of like recharge for a minute and then jump back on the trail. And I had so much fun. That like the whole time I was just thinking like, what's next? You know, what can I do so next? Where, where is that one? Is that, that's not down in the Carpet Canyon, is it? No, no, no. It's in Los Olivos in Santa Barbara. It's, it's on this giant farm ranch, kind of cattle ranch. Um, it's right. beautiful rolling hills and pretty low elevation profile. Sort of uh, desert chaparral. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just a yeah. fun weekend. It's more of like a giant, like, ultra party rather than, you know, it's like a race that's going on during a fun, like, family get-together of a bunch of ultra runners. So you talked about the, the flow and the fact that you find a lot of ex-addicts mm -hmm. in distance running, not just alters, but in distance running. Yeah. And a lot of pursuits like that because it's almost like a replacement therapy mm -hmm. for the thing that was giving them the dopamine before. Now they've got the flow of endurance sports to give them that same hit. Yes. And uh, and I talked to that when I 
talked to the guy who runs uh, Back on My Feet uh-huh. in Boston. And so what they do is they take uh, people out of homeless shelters and they support them and they give them all the, the normal social support stuff, but they also put them in a morning running program. Uh-huh. And that increased success. So you should talk to those folks. It started in uh, Baltimore. But, you know, I put that question to him. He's like, yeah, you know, we all think that. But at the end of the day, this is a much better addiction, a much more positive addiction yeah. Yeah. Than, than the other one. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so, yeah. to even take that a step further, right when I was starting my thesis for a brief time, I was considering doing it on running therapy, which I think a lot of people don't even know exist at this point. There's a San Diego running therapy clinic, actually, and the therapists take their clients out on runs. And there is research that shows the clients are able to kind of reach deeper levels of introspection and self-realization and make progress where before when they were confined inside a room, you know, not in nature, they it's confining. If you think about it, you know, when we're inside, we're not in our natural element and that if we're physically confined, is that actually emotionally confining us too? So I think like the term like run free, like that's been so popular, you know, especially from born to run. I think it's popular because it kind of describes the basic essence of like what it means to be human. You know, we're, we're running free. We're, you know, just going like there's nothing stopping us. And I think that to a lot of people is kind of like a metaphor for life. You can do that, then you can express that in different areas of your life. And it's so simple, but it's so, I'm still only beginning to do my research on it, but it's you Yeah, know, I mean, if, if, you, if you put the metaphysical stuff aside and say, you know, your brain, your body is a system, mm-hmm. and depending on what input you put in, you're going to get certain outputs. Mm-hmm. So if you take yourself out of your stressful environment and put yourself out in the trails, uh, unless you're being attacked by <laughs> cougars or bears, that's your input's going to be very positive inputs, uh-huh. you know, the nature and the everything and, and the lack of the stressors, you're going to get a much better output, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, it just makes sense from, from that point of view if you look at it from a system science point of view. Yeah, yeah. Very good. You've got you've got so much untapped, unplowed ground to cover here. You could, you put a whole practice around this. I know. it's you know Especially out in California. You'd never get away with that running therapy stuff out here in Boston, <laughs> but Santa Barbara will do anything. Oh, yeah. And I think it's great because I think the um, the psychologist in San Diego, he has like a normal practice, too. And he offers his clients like a 30 percent discount or something <laughs> to go running with him. And I think like I think 80 percent of his clients, he said, go running with him instead. And I'm like, you know, that's amazing. You're getting people to exercise and you're, you know, improving your ability to help them improve their lives. I mean, I feel like anytime I go on a run with friends, it's you know, running therapy. And also, you know, one last bit with ultra runners, the social aspect of it is huge. The social support, I think, is, you know, almost one of the biggest factors contributing to ultra runners, like sense of well-being and like the social interaction, like, like, think about it, because back when we were, but, you know, but how is that different from any other tribe or any other community? Oh, it's not. It's not. But I think that in comparison to like, people who run shorter distances, they're a lot more individual. You know, the lineup of like a 5K, like I mentioned earlier, you know, nobody talks to each other. They don't really socialize. They're not like, I mean, some do, you know, there's always the outliers, but 
Yeah, I think the trail running um, attracts those kind of people as well. You know, going all the way back to high school, there's a big difference between the guys who run track and the guys who run cross country. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it's just part of the same thing. No, I agree with you. There's for trail runners and for ultra runners, there's definitely a, a tribe, and it's a laid back tribe. Yeah, you know, tribe. you know, it's funny because there are a lot more like trail runners and ultra runners are extroverted in their kind of group. There was a study that kind of compared all extreme endurance athletes and personality. And, you know, the ultra runners were grouped with the mountain climbers and, you know, the paragliders or whatever. And then like the cyclists were introverts, which I thought was hilarious because, you know, they, they go in a pack, but they're always like, you know, kind of like focused on their own thing. But it's just interesting how people like personality contributes to, people's desire to choose certain activities yeah 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 Yeah. so it's interesting because it definitely fills a void in your life if you're that kind of uh, unsettled seeker type person yeah so i'm going to put you on the spot as we head towards the exit here krista i'm going to put you on the spot what's your one big thesis conclusion here Mm, um my big thesis conclusion you know it really has to be that trail and ultra running is if you're looking, if a person is looking for an activity, you know, if they're lacking in an area in their life and they want like the optimal thing to do, you know, they don't want to spend, you know, an hour in the gym and, you know, 30 minutes with a therapist every week, you know what I mean? Doing a bunch of different things to improve their sure. well-being, go on a trail, run for as long as you can, as often as you can, and you're going to see amazing results, like 100% guaranteed. There's no way that you can ever run an ultra marathon and not be a changed person for the better. At least that's, you know, my opinion and what I'm going to try to prove, you know, with my dissertation. And, you know, my thesis, you know, showed that people who are out on a trail and run long distances experience such a greater experience of flow compared to anything else. And flow is, you know, a direct contributor to well-being. So, I think, but you know, when it comes down to it, I think the most important thing for people is to find something that they're passionate about, whatever drives them and to pursue it as fast as you can. So for runners, I think that returning to trail and ultra running is like returning to our roots. And I think that everyone should explore that or at least give it a go. All right. Well, good stuff. It's fascinating. Well, thank you. I appreciate, you know, the interest in my thesis and I'm excited to keep on researching. This is good stuff for people to think about and talk about when they're out in their runs, right? Yes, it is. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'll let you get on with your day. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Recovering from plantar fasciitis, part one. Over the last 24 months... I have gone from the height of being a qualified marathoner, ultra runner, triathlete, and ultra mountain biker to the low of not being able to do anything outside of a few paltry calisthenics and a few sad minutes on the elliptical machine. I was laid low by that most insidious of running injuries, plantar fasciitis. Over the last nine months, I have built my base back from a couple easy runs a week to 50-plus miles a week and a marathon a month, I've worked through and beaten, beaten back 
plantar fasciitis. This article is the first in a series of articles on what I discovered in that process. I will document my battle and the multitude of false cures, what worked and what didn't. I am not unscarred from my journey. I will probably never be at the level of running capability and capacity that I was at before, but I have gotten back to the point where I can execute the volume and quality necessary to pursue the sport as a competent amateur. So what is plantar fasciitis? This is one of the insidious things about plantar fasciitis. That label can refer to a number of different ailments. All it means is that you have an injury somewhere in the fascia, somewhere in the plantar region of your foot. In my case, and in many cases, it manifests initially as heel pain. The heel pain gets progressively worse until you can't run anymore. Fascia is a generic term for the sheathing and non-muscle connective tissue in the body. There's a large amount of fascia in the foot. In my case of plantar fasciitis, I had a tear in one of the tendons that connects that big hunk of tissue that forms the arch of the foot to my heel bone. I've heard of cases that involve different areas of foot fascia. For instance, the forward attach points of the arch near the toes. And why do you care? Because when you are diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, it's a very general description. You need to understand specifically which part of which tendon or ligament is affected in order to treat it. For me, it's about the arch. I have high arches. The arch of the foot is a big spring, like the leaf springs in a car. The arch is designed this way to absorb the shock of the foot hitting the ground. As runners, we use this arch shock absorber thousands of times in a run. The faster we go, the more force the arch absorbs. The arch of the foot is a critical part of the connected system of muscles, tendons, ligaments, and bones that work together when we run. Unfortunately, it's so critical that it is very hard to run with a damaged arch. The piece of tissue that forms that big spring of the arch is a very robust thing. It is heavy-duty equipment. It has to be for the role it plays in our locomotion. My 190 pounds hit the ground with a force of four to five times that. When my foot hits the ground, this giant heavy-duty spring compresses to absorb that energy. When I toe off, the spring uncompresses and returns that energy as lift and forward propulsion. My doctor described this piece of tissue as being the consistency and strength of a car tire. Why do you care? First, because when you get an injury in the arch or its connection points, you are transferring all of that force into the injury every time you step, making it very hard to have an opportunity to heal. Secondly, the thickness and robustness of this tissue makes it difficult to use normal therapies you might use on muscle tissue, like topical heat, ice, ointment. These types of treatments have a hard time penetrating this thick tissue. Stretching it is also hard because of its thickness and robustness. Think of trying to stretch a car tire. Finally, the tissue does not have a great blood supply system. 
like a muscle. And that makes it hard to get healing and more likely to get scar tissue. Scar tissue doesn't flex. It cracks. Having a chunk of non-compressible, non-stretchable scar tissue in this arch system means it will never, ever really heal. Once the scar tissue is in there, it doesn't matter how much time you take off, as soon as you start running again, the force into the arch will crack the scar tissue and it'll start hurting again. What are the symptoms? Common symptoms for plantar fasciitis is some sort of pain or ache in the foot. Mine manifested as an achy heel. It was hardly noticeable at first. I thought I had maybe trod upon a rock in the woods and picked up a small bruise. And certainly it was nothing to worry me or to make me think I should stop running. It slowly and and progressively got worse until finally it was quite sore and I went to the doctor. I could still run on it, it just ached. This ache for me, because of where the tear was on the attach point in the heel, was on the bottom inside of the heel, not the point of the heel. The ache is about an inch and a half towards the center of the foot where the arch meets the foot. Remember, plantar fasciitis is a general description, and the location of your actual injury could be anywhere in this general area. One sure sign of plantar fasciitis is that it will hurt like hell when you get out of bed in the morning and take those first couple steps into the bathroom. And this is because as you sleep, the arch of the foot contracts, and when you step on it, it is stretching out for the first time in that day. And in summary for part one, for for this first article, I realized that I had plantar fasciitis in June of 2011. It is now September of 2013. At the time, in the spring of 2011, I was very fit. I was coming off a successful marathon campaign where I requalified at Boston. I was running 40 to 50 miles a week, and I was trying to decide if I should run another ultra, a triathlon, or do something else. Then, because of this tiny, torn piece of fascia in this very important foot structure, I could do nothing. I ended up having to take the better part of 18 months off, and I'm just now getting back to my previous race fitness. My plantar fasciitis still aches as I sit here, but I have it under control. And in the next part of this series, I'll talk about potential ways I managed to give myself plantar fasciitis and start working through the theory and efficacy of some of the treatments. The woods are lovely dark and deep but i have promises to keep and miles to go before i sleep and miles to go before i sleep well my friends i sit here thursday night the 29th of august in a hotel room i didn't run today i'm in boise idaho I was at a client today. I've got the Pocatello Marathon two days from now on Saturday, and I really don't know what to expect. In my previous races, I've expected the Marathon Miracle. That's the wonderful thing where you show up for the race and the adrenaline and the attitude of the event just drives you to unexpected achievements. 
And I feel like I had a very good training cycle. I think I tapered well. I'm not real thin, but I'm not overly heavy. I'm healthy. Nothing really hurts. I mean, there is the omnipresent ache of the evil plantar fasciitis, but nothing else hurts. And I'm surprised because I've ran the volume up uh, well over 50 miles a week with some solid intensity during the peak of this cycle. So I was, I figured for sure I'd tweak something. One good thing is that Buddy got some extra runs in with me as I cycled my volume and intensity down into the taper weeks. And we spent the earlier part of this week down on Cape Cod exploring a new trail system that I found near my house. And isn't that funny? I've been getting in the car and driving to trails to run on. And one of my neighbors told me about a giant trail system right at the end of our road. (laughs) Jet lag and overtiredness can always bite you in a race, especially when you're a couple of time zones away from home. And I usually find that sorts itself out. I've been traveling a lot in my life. I really know how to manage that sort of thing. I find it sorts itself out as soon as you start running, as long as you execute with some discipline and let the race come to you. I've been trying to meditate more and be present and aware instead of just charging around like a neurotic teenager all the time. I'm a work in progress, even at my age. And it's pretty country out here. It reminds me of a cross between Utah and Colorado. So wish me luck. I'll have another race report for you one way or the other in a couple weeks. I sure would love to qualify and get this monkey off my back. Once more into the breach, my friends. Cannon to the left of me, cannon to the right. Stormed at by shot and shell. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. Once more into the breach, my friends. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao!